This podcast episode is brought to you by cats. Not as good as dogs, but better than being dead. Just kidding, guys. This podcast episode is brought to you by nothing. But we'd like to see that change. If there's something you'd like us to support or something you'd want the world to know about, we'd be happy to advertise it for you on our podcast. Contact us at utilitymuffinlabs.com. If you don't, you're a bad friend. All right, enough of that and on to the show. Welcome to the Playing Hooky Podcast with your hosts, Rachel and Nathan, brought to you by utilitymuffinlabs.com, consistently rated adequate. Welcome to another episode of Playing Hooky Podcast. You had to think first, about, it was the first time I've ever I've ever introduced our podcast. You've had to think about which yeah, one was it like, was. Which, what podcast are we doing? Which words do I say? Is it nerd? Is it 25? No, no, no. It's Playing Hooky Podcast. It's the Playing the, Hooky Podcast. That's the exact reason why I don't bring us in, because... Yeah, well, it's confusing. I, I have a personal criticism for Whoa, myself. Look at how hot that tea is. It's so way. hot. That's why I didn't want to drink it out of this tumbler Hell because, no. yeah, like I need to let yeah. it cool down before I put it in my body. Hell no. Um, but I have a criticism for myself. <clears throat> yeah. So when I used to listen to the Nerdist podcast um, a couple years ago, yeah. um, I kind of stopped after a while. I, I went back and Sorry. forth. Like I used to have a job in like 2010, 2011 that was very monotonous. That was a, a lab research job and I could like listen to podcasts while I worked. And that was one of the first podcasts I listened to. And it was still like well before episode 100 and that before it kind of blew up and Chris Hardwick became this like guy who hosts everything on TV. And um, I really enjoyed it. But then I got away from it a couple years and then like a few years later, I uh, was like painting a room mm -hmm. and I needed a podcast to listen to. I'm like, well, I'll check out the Nerdist podcast. I haven't listened to it in a few years. Maybe it's gotten, it's, it's different. And it was, it was like huge. He'd blown up at that point and had all kinds of like celebrities and guests on and stuff. But he would always introduce the podcast at the beginning with like a little commercial mm -hmm. talking about like tour dates and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, like whatever the sponsor was. But he'd always do that, and I think this is where I got it from. He'd always be like, "Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast episode," and like that's what I realized I was yeah. doing with playing hooky. So no, I, mean, I guess I kind of copied off of Chris Hardwick that's a little okay. bit. I mean, um, they they kind of they teach you very specifically, and when you go to like school for broadcasting or any kind of stuff like that, they teach you like. You smile and yeah. like you, you, when you talk, you should smile because your audience can hear you smile. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm brownie face. I don't Yeah, care. my name's Nathan. I'm awesome. I'm serious. I'm a, I'm a cool guy. I don't guy. know. I, I'm not, I don't have time for smiling. You sound like a cartoon villain from G.I. Joe. I don't have time for smiling. Oh, actually, now you sound like a cartoon villain from anime. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time for smiling. I've got things to do. Oh, uh, oh I'm going to go fight my enemy now. <laughs> I have walked very far to meet him, and now I will conquer him. Oh. You're not using any, like, contractions. <laughs> that was actually really funny. I cannot tolerate this. I will go fight him now, and <laughs> I will meet him on the top of the mountain. Okay. Would you like to challenge me? Oh, you really, you really got me in my in my funny spot. That was good. I could... uh, come with me, Rachel, and we shall go battle. Oh my God, like that's that's a perfect way to diffuse a Rachel meltdown. Is just to start talking to me in this and not using any contractions. I will not use them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Nathan, my dear, what are we talking about today? Um, so my anime voice is actually kind of appropriate. Slightly, mm. if you if you really stretch your imagination, yeah, tell me how you're gonna uh, Kevin Bacon your way into this I transition. Will, I will. So so um, we sort of um, 
I guess we kind of bounced into this one. Like we didn't really plan this ahead of time. Um, I, I had really wanted you to see, uh, the hateful eight Mm -hmm. and you really wanted me to see black death Mm -hmm. and the hateful eight is, uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. It's a Western, Mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot of anime really like foundationally shares a lot of themes with like the old spaghetti Westerns, Mm -hmm. especially the dialogue Mm. and the violence. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Because anime is usually very like high on the the gore. Can be. Like like very bloody. Can be, yeah. Um, Like, and and also, if you want to go all the way back to like, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, fistful of dollars, like those are like scene for scene ripoffs in some cases of Japanese samurai films. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah, they they share uh, in in a vague sense. Also, they they share common ancestors. Sure, and I think also uh, Quentin Tarantino is a big cinephile and a b- mm-hmm. big fan of uh, Asian that's cult true. and Japanese yeah, movies that's, that's very true. in general. So. Yeah, the the Asian films I enjoy, although anime never really stuck with me. Right, um, it's just not something I've ever really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I had never seen Black Death, and mm-hmm. um, uh, you, you know, you were like how that how that came about. Um, I, I run a Vampire the Masquerade Dark Ages podcast. For those of you who don't know, I don't know how. You mean, um, yes, I, yes. I do a review yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we've started doing Dark Ages. And um, I'm, I'm not really like, my mind doesn't really focus very well when it comes to like Dark Ages material, like mm-hmm. the Middle Ages and medieval. I, I don't like fantasy. And Just so, not a part of history you've ever been super like interested <laughs> no, in. I mean, I'm I'm certainly interested in it, but I'm interested in it more from an educational perspective, right? Than I am from like a I don't I don't fantasize about it. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not a I'm not a high fantasy guy. Basically, as close as I get to like Dark Ages or medieval fantasy is Game of Thrones, and it, it's you know it is, but it isn't. It's in right. a different world and a different whatever. So you would be um, more interested in understanding why the British won the Battle of Agincourt rather than like how vampires did the political machinations that would allow the longbow to have been Yeah, I mean, a thing. so it's just, it's an era that I don't know a lot about historically. I know very rudimentary stuff about, so it's mm-hmm. very difficult for me to create stories in that era because... Yeah. you don't, don't have a good base. No, I don't yeah. know that much about it. And so I kind of been grousing that, you know, I was having a hard time coming up with story concepts and you were like, well, I have this movie that's really cool. You should watch. Mm -hmm. And that's Black Death. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, and, and interestingly enough, there's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of horror that takes place in that era, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with as, as terrible as like the uh, and horrible of a time to live in as the the medieval times, dark ages would have been. You'd think there'd be more horror movies, but I think in general, as a culture, we're just not super interested in it because, There's other no, than just an education yeah. standpoint, because it's hard to connect with. Yeah. It is a long time ago, but it's not a romantic time, and also not a lot of stuff besides like what was captured by the church survived from men. So it's yeah. hard to have like a good understanding of like what the culture was yeah. actually like. I, I mean, basically, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not a fucking historian and yeah. I didn't spend hours studying this ever. So maybe there is mm-hmm. a lot of information out there, but yeah, pulp culture wise, there's yeah. not a lot to grab hold of. No, there's, there's a few, there's a few like well-known movies that uh, kind of take place during that era, during like the crusades and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And this one, you've got your Robin hood, yeah. but again, that's kind of like the only story that, reaches us in like America right, right, right. and like you know I'm sure that 
people who live in Europe have a much better like right. historical foundation. Spoiler alert, Americans not so good with history because <laughs> we're kind of like, if it ain't about us and what we did, we kind of don't care. I don't um, even ain't a Kaiser blade. Yeah, I don't know like a, why I made it like Southern people are stupid again, no, that's, but they're it's not. It's just the go-to. Yeah. yeah, because the truth is like if you yeah, travel. Let me, let me say it like this. If it's not part of our history and we went in it, we kind of don't care. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There's your Kennedy impression. Of it, it, the truth is if you travel like 30 miles outside of a major city, everybody city. sounds like that. Any so. city. And actually, kind of interesting, uh, that was a one point I was going to make about the Hateful Eight when we get into it. Yeah. So about how like probably it's true. If you travel anywhere in the United States, if, as long as you're not in the new England area and you travel anywhere in the United States, very, very likely like an hour outside of a city, you're going to get that twang. Um, that's sort of Southern, sort of Midwestern. And we, it doesn't matter even, where you are. Even new England has its own, like, like but it has its don't own go down over there. Oh, don't go down over there. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll meet you down by the bubble. Yeah, it's yeah, certainly, it's certainly yeah. not, it's not Southern, but it's certainly rural. It's rural. There's a rural, there are different regional rural accents, but I think that there's like a, a distinct twang that people will have outside of the city, no matter where you go in the country, even if it's not in a Southern state, they'll still kind of have a twang. Mm -hmm. And I think largely, and you kind of see that in um, the hateful eight is because freaking like a lot of the places in the American West and the Midwest were settled by people who originated from the South that migrated for work and for jobs after the end of slavery or, you know, when different industries came and went, Um, which we discussed kind of in the previous podcast, but like all of my family comes from the American South and only like in the last maybe 80 years lived in the Midwest or the Northern part. And they all came up here for jobs and sort of a mass migration, um, you know, in the forties and fifties to the rust belt, to the rust belt. And now there are no jobs here. Yeah, so. Right, right. So, um, well, anyways, let's get into it. So we we watched the Hateful Eight mm-hmm. and we watched Black Death. Now, um, our the version of the Hateful Eight that we watched is a little unique, I think. Okay. Um, in that, uh, so for people that don't know this, if you go onto Netflix right now, you'll in be able to in the states or yeah. Canada, probably. I I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, in continental U.S., if you go onto Netflix right now you can find two versions of The Hateful Eight. One is the the full-length film, and the other one is like the, it's extended, and it's split up into four episodes. And that's how I consumed it. And that was the perfect way to consume it. Perfect. Right, because we could watch it like a TV show, uh-huh. and we didn't have to sit there for four hours. Right. And um, I apologize, but I, I have only seen it, I had seen it in the theater, mm-hmm. and then I had not seen it, and I, and I actually don't own it. Um, so I, I hadn't watched it since it was out in the theater. Mm-hmm. So Which this it came was, out in like 2015. So yeah. it's been about, you know, four years since so, you saw so it. So this is the first time that I saw it. So we watched the extended version and I don't know exactly what in it is extended. Mm-hmm. However, there was some language that seemed to be, there seemed to be a lot more of it than I remember. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more of a, a particular word that starts with N? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> what I can remember of this story is is very simple, mm-hmm. and, and you can you can adjust as you see fit. But um, there is um, uh, what's his name? Kurt Russell mm-hmm. uh, plays John Ruth, and he is transporting a prisoner right. named Daisy Domergue mm-hmm. to Red Rock. Red Rock is a sort of a um, an outpost town in Wyoming, I think. 
I have no idea. I think it's Wyoming. If, for all I care, it's a fictional location. Yeah. But, well, but, it, but it may be a fictional, place, but yeah, but yeah, Wyoming. It I does think. take place in Wyoming, mm-hmm. and um, along the way, which if you're not from the United States, Wyoming is what we, what would be considered a Western state in like the northern part of the country, aka it gets fucking cold in the winter. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of like wide open space. Well, so anyways, along the way, um, uh, in in the uh, what would you call it, uh, the carriage or what have you? Yeah. Uh, he happens upon um, Samuel Jackson's character. Samuel Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson's character is um, a general, or uh, he was like a major or something like that. He had in, a role in, in the, the in the Civil War, fighting for the North um, as part of the um, yeah. uh, Black freed slave. Yeah. Uh, regimen. So, so, anyways, uh, happens upon him, and and uh, essentially where we we open in on the movie is mm-hmm. that that point in time, and it takes place during a blizzard. Right, like the, there's a blizzard approaching, and um, so uh, these uh, bounty hunters right. are traveling to like sort of a, an outpost in between Red Rock and wherever they started from. That's owned by a woman. Um, named Minnie, who it's called Minnie's Haberdashery, and it's it's like this outpost. And and so when Samuel Jackson's character and Kurt Russell's character are traveling with a fugitive, they pick up another kind of straggler along the way, and then they end up at Minnie's Haberdashery, and the story kind of unfolds, and it's a little bit of like almost uh, an Agatha Christie style murder mystery. Yeah. Um. It's since it's a relatively newish movie that maybe not everybody's seen. We probably don't want to give too many spoilers. Yeah. As far yeah. as like what happens but essentially you've got a lot of uh quentin tarantino uh go-to actors like tim roth and um let's see um michael madsen michael madsen is in it as well um but a lot of other actors and samuel jackson obviously already mentioned but jennifer jason lee plays daisy domergu who's sort of the the prisoner who's being transported by the um uh, what, what's why I can't even think of the word what they bounty are hunter? bounty hunters thank you mm-hmm. um, and then um, Tim Roth is in it as well he's already at like Minnie's Haberdashery and the characters meet him as they go forward yep. but um, yeah so essentially they all get there and because of this blizzard they're all trapped the eight of them I actually think it's nine main characters right I don't like I was trying to count through I was like who are the eight people in this <laughs> I think it's you've got the four people who are already at the Minnie's haberdashery, and yeah. then Kurt Russell. So, so who who are not part of it are um, Obi is not considered one of the hateful eight, and Obi is the stagecoach yeah. driver. Um, he is like a side character, so he's not he's not a part of that. So, Zoe. so the hateful eight would be Major Marquess Warren, yep. who's Samuel Jackson, John Ruth, Kurt Daisy, Russell, Daisy yep. Domergue, mm-hmm. Chris Mannix. Chris Mannix is like the guy they pick up along the he's way. The, he's the quote unquote supposed sheriff. He's of Red the new Rock. sheriff of Red Rock, trying um, to get to Red Rock. Senior Bob. Senior Bob is a guy who's already at Minnie's Haberdashery. Mm-hmm. Oswaldo Mulberry. Okay, he's a hangman who's going to yep. go work in Red, Red Rock. Joe Gage. Who is sort of like um, like maybe like a cowboy who's, you know, yeah. passing through. Yeah. yeah. And um, General Sandy Smithers. Okay, so who's a retired... Um, Bruce Stern. Yeah, yeah, who's a retired uh, general for the South from the Civil War, right. who's also heading to Red Rock to investigate the death of his son. Yep. 
Um, so you've got these folks who are at Minnie's haberdashery and the kind of thing that starts off like the mystery part of it is Samuel L. Jackson's character, uh, Major Marquess Warren, he's passed through Minnie's many, many times. He's gone to Red Rock before. Like this is a, a standard thoroughfare for him right. um, <clears throat> in his job as a bounty hunter. And when he gets to Minnie's, she's not there. And neither is like another guy who it's never made clear to me whether they're in a romantic relationship or if they just kind of like both live at Minnie's haberdashery. I believe that they're a couple. They're again, a couple. It's not ever really like, okay. it's not overtly stated. Right. So there's, there's Minnie. But at least the, he lives there. Right. There's Minnie who is sort of the owner and proprietor. And then there's a gentleman named Sweet Dave who also lives there. And, and so they get there and Samuel L. Jackson's character is like, hey, where's Minnie? And then um, Minnie has hired um, this Mexican gentleman named Bob, who goes by Senior Bob throughout the movie, um, to kind of like be a, you know, like a, a ranch hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells Major Marquess, Samuel Jackson's character, um, oh, she left about a week ago to go visit her mom, who lives on the north side of the mountain. And she's not here. And so Major Marquess is like, huh, that's interesting. And just something seems suspicious to right. him about that whole story. Well, and that kind of starts the trying to like piece together what's going on and if there's anything yeah. suspicious. And as that happens, we find out more and more about these characters that well, are so stuck in this the, blizzard. The, the paranoia basically starts from, from the very beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. right? Because um, John Ruth... Mm-hmm. Is is hesitant to let Samuel L. Jackson's Major Marquess uh, onto the stagecoach to begin with, right? Because right? they start off the Be- movie because with, yeah. Daisy has a ten thousand dollar bounty on her head, right? So when John Ruth and Ob come across Major Marquess, kind of stranded in the snow, needing help. John Ruth is like, I don't want anyone to kind of steal this bounty, but he's also not convinced that Daisy doesn't have secret people working to help free her along the way. Right. So eventually... And in fact, he believes that she does. Yeah, he believes 100% that she's got someone out there sneaking around trying to rescue her. So not only is he paranoid that maybe Major Marquess is trying to get in on his money, he's also paranoid that he could be could have been hired by her or her gang to help right. free her. But he, um, it, it seems like he's a little bit willing to let him onto the wagon uh, because, um, like, he's a bounty hunter as well. He has bodies with him. Yeah, he's got and, three bodies. Right, and, yeah. and as he says, the bodies I've got here are worth twelve thousand. Right. You know, so you're ten thousand. That's great, but I, you know, I'm, I've got my own. Right, and he's and, taking him to Red Rock to right. turn him in to get, you know, Rick. Because um, John, John Ruth is known as the Hangman. Right. Right. That's the one thing that's that's unique about his character is that he's a bounty hunter, but he always brings his bounties in alive so that they can hang. Right. And Marquez, which you don't need to do. You don't make right, more money that right. way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Major Marquez says, you know, I, I bring him in dead because I don't want to get killed, and it's a fool's errand. Right. And so he's got three corpses. Mm-hmm. And so they and they've met before. Right. They they had met like they mentioned in dialogue that they'd met, you know, uh like eight months previous. Right. And they've kind of they've crossed had paths. Dinner, they've had a yeah. dinner together before. Mm-hmm. So they kind of know each other already. And <clears throat> that's one thing that's pretty consistent throughout the story is that each of these characters has either met one another mm-hmm. or they know each other through reputation right? or like, you know, just through name alone, mm-hmm. right? W- with, with the hangman, like he's got papers and they know that a hangman is coming. Right. Or with the hangman who's at Minnie's haberdashery, there's a hangman named yeah. Oswaldo Mowbray mm-hmm. who is like a licensed hangman, I guess, who's going to Red Rock to like work 
and yeah. be a hangman or an interrogator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but John Ruth's character is known as John the Hangman, quote, Ruth, because mm-hmm. he, like you said, always brings his, yeah. his capture in. Yeah, so it basically the, the majority of the movie takes place in one room, mm-hmm. and it is just a movie that's kind of like filled with tension and yeah. tension and tension, and you're never quite sure what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, I mean, that's basically the rundown of the movie. Right. Now, what did you think? <laughs> um, I really, really liked it. Like when I, I, I knew I was going to enjoy it because I've honestly I've never seen a Quentin Tarantino movie where I was like, nah, I'm good, I'm mm-hmm. all, I'm all right. The only one I've ever seen where I was just like felt like it was um a little harder to get through. And you might get mad at me, and a lot of people might get mad at me, but that mm-hmm. was Jackie Brown. No, that's the you, that's the answer I figured you were going to get. Yeah. That's the most common answer. Like, I like the movie Jackie it is, Brown. It is the most underrated Tarantino film. Yeah, I like the movie Jackie Brown. So I'm not saying I didn't like it, but I think of all of the movies I've seen of his, that one was one where I was like, I feel like this could be 20 minutes shorter. So it's also uh, a movie he didn't write. Okay. So, so that, it's based off of um, a book, actually. Okay. He didn't write the screenplay, though? No, I think he wrote the screenplay, but it's not original material. It's not okay. It's, yeah, yeah, it's it's it was it's based off of somebody else's okay. material. Okay, cool. But I mean, that's the only one where I was I would be like, eh, I don't need to see that again. Once was enough for me. But every other Quentin Tarantino movie, like I love, right? Um, and so I knew I was probably gonna like it. I like Django Unchained, and so and I knew that this was a similar feel uh, as far as the the time period. I think it probably only takes place maybe a couple decades or a decade after the end of the civil war. So similar time period. Um, so I did like it and I would recommend anyone to watch it specifically. I think if you have the opportunity to watch it as I did as a four piece Netflix show, that's the way to do it. Um, because you can get invested and sit down and watch, you know, 50 to 60 minutes of a show, get up, do something else, um, and come back to it later. So I think actually the first two episodes you and I watched, we started watching, you know, on evenings while we were eating dinner. Yeah. And then the third one we started um, during dinner, and then you had to start to get ready to go to work. And I was like, do you mind if I keep watching it? And you're like, that's fine. By the time it was done, you'd already left for work. And I was like, well, it's the weekend. I'm <laughs> finishing it. Because episodes one and two are interesting, and they're sort of like a very slow build to you getting to, like, what to, – to getting to, like, the peak tension of, like, mm-hmm. what's going on. By the end of that third episode, you're going to want to binge right into the fourth one because right. really by the end of the third episode is where like, oh shit, all this shit starts to go down and you're not going to be able to stop if you're watching it on Netflix. You're going to binge through the rest of it. So definitely like watch episode one, episode two. You're going to be good to do those in a single sitting, but be prepared to have like two hours because once you're done with three, you're going to want to start watching four immediately. Yeah. Um, and so I, I liked it. Um so I would say, like uh, like I said, uh, since I did watch it in episodes, um, around episode two, I was like, you know, this really feels more like a play than a movie. Yeah. And Nate goes, that's because it was. Right, right. So why don't you explain, like, why it was uh, even ever a play? Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if it, it was – I don't think it was written, like, with the intent of necessarily being a play, but it may have been. I have to go back and look. I didn't do any – previous research like before we did this i'm just going off of memory Mm -hmm. but basically um this was a a script that got leaked um he had uh sent it out to um a couple of actors Mm -hmm. and um 
you know, was preparing to make this movie and the script got leaked and put on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I believe if memory serves correctly at that point, he was like, well, you know, he was very like down about it and he was like, well, I'm not making it. Forget it. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like that gut check reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think the people, uh, you know, that had read it and the people that like had seen it leaked Mm -hmm. were kind of clamoring like, like, this is awesome. You should make this. Right. And so what he did was he did a couple of like, um, he, he, before it was ever put into production as a movie, most of these actors, I think only a couple of actors were replaced, but most of these actors were already on board. And basically he did like a couple of like, you know, just reads, just mm-hmm. read throughs, um, like stage production type of things. And, um, uh, either did it like a couple of times in LA, but, but basically, yeah, I think what I read online was that they did do like a stage production in LA, mm-hmm. whether it was like a full, like, I don't think it was like a stage. Cra- yeah. I don't yeah. know if, if it was like a fully scripted and rehearsed production, Yeah, but there was something on stage. Right. Yeah. But it, it, it's, it definitely plays to a stage production very well. Yeah. It, it, it is, it is written and it takes place in one room. Mm-hmm. So you don't, there's not a lot of scene shifting, um, and when it does happen, it can be very like impactful. Right. Um, but I feel like watching it, I could tell, like, I think probably him doing it on a stage mm-hmm. probably influenced his cinematography a little yeah. bit because that's why I noticed I was like, this feels more like a play, particularly when we finally get to Minnie's Haberdashery than just a standard movie. I think part of that was is three things that came to that. One, he was probably influenced by having done it on stage once or twice. Yeah. Two, Quentin Tarantino is famous for his very long shots without cuts in between. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like when you go see a play, it's not like they can stop and cut every time something new happens. You're just watching something continuous. And then three, I think it's all, for the most part, the whole movie happens in one room. And even things that are happening outside of this one room, like character dialogue that might be happening outdoors, you still hear. And so you can get the experience that those characters are still doing things that are impacting the environment that you're seeing. And so it it just like 100% reminded me of going to see a play. Um, So I think that that's one really unique and special thing about this movie is it really does feel like you're watching a play on film. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool. I love the way that in all of his movies, Quentin Tarantino mixes humor with action and horror and violence. Yeah. Um, That was especially well done in this movie. The gore, it's very gore heavy. Like, and I like the way that he used sort of the graphic elements of it. Right. Because I feel like a lot of times when you watch a movie that is particularly bloody or gruesome, it's kind of like when once the the blood and guts starts it's just kind of like a continuous slow burn to yeah. the end of the movie but he uses violence and gore in such a specific and well-timed way that it's like it's like shocking blasts of gore yeah. at, that aren't that are they're just like peppered in at exactly the right moment it's like a comedian who really understands how to use swearing in their comedy Mm -hmm. so that every fucking word isn't fucking like the fucking 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 but they like pepper in like really good swearing and and you know biting comments Mm -hmm. throughout their their set so that it has the most impact that's they're not clean but they're not yeah you know they're not just like dirty for the purposes of being dirty right and that's like me where they're like fucking uh what was that thing i was thinking of fuck fuck, uh this fucking guy yeah yeah okay yeah we get it however i will say 
I felt that the language in this movie may have been a little excessive. It was pretty strong. There was a lot of strong language. I yeah. think, but I think part of that is. So back to the gore, real quickly. Um, I'll just you know like reiterate. He uses it just enough, and in so that when it when he does use it, it's incredibly impactful. Yeah. It doesn't and, happen until very late into the film, and even then, it's not continuous. But when it happens, it's it's hard. It happens hard. I think that with Quentin Tarantino's period movies, um, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained and Hateful Eight, those movies, they're they're really leaning heavy on like the older movies that, that they were influenced by. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I've noticed is the way that those movies are made, and it's different than like Jackie Brown or Pulp Fiction or um, – uh, uh, Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, or Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. is that throughout the movie, it's like it's made so that you know you're watching a movie, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. like those the the three his three first films, they're very serious. Yeah, there's not a lot of like even the more like comical moments of it. They're written in a way that it seems plausible within the world. It's very twisted. Right. Yeah. The, the violence is realistic and, the, mm-hmm. you know, the interactions are, they might be slightly exaggerated, but they're, they're more hyper-realistic. Mm-hmm. Whereas with his latter three films, they're much more like comical. Yeah. They're much more like, and, and I don't mean like funny. I just mean like the, the exploding blood right. is like, it's intentionally unrealistic. Yeah. Like, it's comically unrealistic. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I feel that the um, Kill Bill one and two mm-hmm. kind of straddled the line. Okay, where they yeah. were both they were both hyper realistic and hyper violent. Right? Yeah, like there's parts in it where you're like, oh, this is definitely a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, there's cuts in the film where you're like, oh, this is definitely a movie. Mm-hmm. But then there's parts like when she's buried and she's trying to dig herself out, right? Where you're like, this is <laughs> like this is hyper realistic. Like this is causing me. Tension. Right. So I, I feel like there, there's been like this transition. So I'm, I'm very interested to see what comes next because yeah. to me, this, this kind of has that too, mm-hmm. where there's like a certain hyper realism of the era, but then it's like so over the top. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh yeah, okay, it's, it's a movie. Over the top. That's the, that's the phrase I was searching for. Yeah, the violence and the gore does feel over the top, but it's so infrequent and so well timed that it has the most impact and the most bang for your buck. I think it does it much better than Django Unchained does. To me, Django Unchained was almost like a um, an exercise of, like, buckets of blood. It was like, like you know, someone had a buzzer and they would just hit that buzzer <laughs> and just shoot liquid everywhere. Uh-huh. You know, it was like, like the end, the last couple of scenes of Django Unchained were just, like, ridiculously bloody. Yeah, they were very bloody. They, I they feel were, like... like, silly. Yeah. This this movie was bloody, but there's some texture, too. Like, I feel like we never got blood without chunks. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, if we got right. blood, we got parts of bone and brain yeah. as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's another reason why we're just, it was, you'd watch and you'd be like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. So it's not a kid's movie. That's what I'm saying. No, definitely um, not. <laughs> but um, so I thought that was fantastic. Back to the language piece. So here's mm-hmm. my opinion and take on that as to why both myself and you mm-hmm. felt, oh, this is excessive. It's because the use of the N-word was it was very prolific. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm watching any other movie, and that word's used a lot, 
if it's used by white characters, it's used not very often, and it's very hateful. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, that is the context in which I would hear, hear that word coming from white people. Right. If I hear black people using it, it's very casual, and it feels natural to the ear to hear it, right? In this context, it felt like, oh, that's why we don't say that word anymore, <laughs> right. right? Because you right. hear Samuel Jackson using it to refer to himself or to other black people, and you're like, okay, well, that's okay, because that's his word, he's allowed to use it. But then there's so much casual use of the word mm-hmm. <laughs> among the white characters to refer to a group of people in a derogatory way Yeah, that like you and I in our daily lives because of the people we associate with, perhaps because of the part of the country we live in, is never used. So to hear other white people say that word right. in its original intended purpose and use does feel kind of like scathing. And so it feels like shocking and like, oh, has like, a, you feel a little like, oh. Now, now I, I think that it's- That's a, my, my opinion it, of why you felt like it was overused. It's very important to note that sort of race and um, individuals- perspective on the civil war are heavily like they're very important to the story of, right. of the, and, and so it's definitely the, a thread. It's, yeah. it's not like it's, it's out of like, it's not realistic. It, you know, it's not lacking realism that the characters are using that No, because yeah. it, it definitely like this movie is a movie about race and the civil war. And, you know, it's, it's, I think there's definitely a reflection in the modern era. Sure. Like, like, and it was done intentionally. But even for me, I was like, okay, we probably could have used it a little less. Just a little less. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, yeah. I, by like hour or two, I was kind of like, all right, I, I, I get it. Yeah. But maybe let's like, let's like wrap it up. You know? Right. And like I said, especially in the extended version. Um, I don't know because, like, like I said, it's been a while since I've re- I watched the original, um, and I watched it in the theater. But I, I, I feel like there was a lot more of it in the extended version. I feel like there's about a half an hour extra of this film, and I could be wrong, but I don't remember it being like almost four hours long in the theater. Yeah. So yeah, but anyways, <clears throat> I, I personally, having watched it again, and. Already knowing what was happening, I will say this. I personally enjoy it more than Django Unchained. Okay. Um, I I would say it's probably like maybe my fourth favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Your fourth favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Okay. Interesting. Well, so my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie is Inglorious Bastards. That's largely because I have always been pretty interested in... um, World War II specifically um, from a historical perspective. Like I've just found it interesting. And there's, (laughs) that's like, I just have like a darkly macabre fascination with the Holocaust and World War II and just kind of trying to understand how they got to that place. Mm -hmm. Like, cause it's, it's so the idea of how they got to that place is so foreign to me that I find it interesting. And so I, I, I really like Inglorious Bastards. And also Christoph Waltz is amazing in mm-hmm. that movie. So that's probably my favorite. Um, I don't know where I would rank this as far as all of him, um, Hateful Eight. But definitely, I think I also liked it better than Django Unchained, um, which 
it's saying a lot because Django Unchained is amazing. And boy, you want to make a bunch of white people feel uncomfortable <laughs> right. in a theater. That's right. a great way well, to this, do it. This will do that too. This yeah, will make this white people feel very uncomfortable for different for a, reasons. For a number of reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like as much as that word is used, mm-hmm. I feel like what happens on the back end of that is just as like jarring as Django Unchained was. Oh, you mean with like the the scene that you weren't positive was in the theatrical version? Yeah, I, I was like, I don't remember if that was like, I'm sure it was because it, yeah. it, it like definitely would cause me to reach for something. Right. But, but you know, when he's like, my big black pecker, I, yeah. like, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, there's this one flashback scene that Samuel Jackson's character has that I think will make dudes feel pretty uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Was, um, uh, and there's some other things that'll make dudes feel uncomfortable. There's a lot of cringy moments yeah, for is, guys in this a, movie. It is definitely a movie that if you don't want to feel uncomfortable, you shouldn't watch this one. Right. Yeah. Um, I liked it a lot though. So, um, real quick <clears throat> story about my history, the beginning. Also, can yes. I, I, I failed to, I don't know why I failed to, but, um, Jackie Brown is based off of a book called Rum Punch by Elmore Leonard. Uh, and Elmore Leonard is like a renowned crime novelist. Right, he yeah. did like Get Shorty mm-hmm. and like a bunch of other things. Like like it's he's a really well known right. crime writer mm-hmm. and that's where the material came from. So. Okay. Um so I wanna know what your favorite Quentin Tarantino movies are, but before we get to that, I just want to um and I may have told you this story before, but our listeners probably don't know about it. So uh my history with Quentin Tarantino movies. Uh, I don't have a history with the director, although that would be awesome. I'd love to play board games with him. Yeah. Um, but I saw the, the first movie I saw was Pulp Fiction. And I didn't see this movie when I was in college. I didn't see this movie when I was in high school. I saw this movie around when it came out when I was about 10 years old. <laughs> and the reason why I saw it at that age is because it had come out on VHS mm-hmm. and my one of my very good friends from childhood, his dad was um, sort of a renaissance man, but one of his jobs was he did movie reviews uh, for like a local PBS NPR type station. And as part of that, I think he got a lot of like early releases or free copies of movies when they came out on VHS is like a, Oh, we're reviewing in theaters this week, sort of like, um, like an amateur Siskel and Ebert type deal. And then he would be like, and coming out this week on VHS is this, this, and this. So he had a copy of Pulp Fiction, I think before like the general public got, could go out to the store and buy it. And so my friend was like, Hey, there's this movie Pulp Fiction, like, you know, it's rated R let's watch it. And I was like, awesome, let's do it. And I'm like, 10-year-old Rachel, I'm like by no means innocent, but I had never seen anything like Pulp Fiction before. I saw it way too young. And I remember when we got to the gimp scene, having no (laughs) context for what I was seeing, but just knowing that whatever I was seeing made me super uncomfortable. Like, 10-year-old girl seeing a a large black man being raped for the first time on screen (laughs) was a little shocking. And like, I remember like it made me very uncomfortable and I found it very unsettling and I don't, I definitely didn't know what I was seeing, but I knew that it was very, very wrong. And then like, I think years later when I was in like older and in junior high, I had watched it again at a friend's house and we probably definitely weren't supposed to be watching it. Um, And then I was like, Oh, now I know what that is. Like now I get it. But at 10 years old, I had no concept. Right. Um, 
So anyway, that that was the first time I saw a Tarantino movie, and uh, it didn't turn me off of them. So yeah, I think I saw it probably in ninety four or ninety five. I don't remember. Like I honestly don't remember the first time I saw it, but I know that was the first Tarantino movie that I saw. Okay, but in ninety four, you were like I was thirteen. You were thirteen. Which is probably a better age than 10. Yeah, for sure. No, no, it's 100, <laughs> yeah. 100%, yeah. 100% like there is a difference mm-hmm. in every way between a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. Right, yeah. It's it's amazing what it's, three years will make. It's it's a huge difference. It's like logarithmic yeah. almost. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't believe that my parents let me watch it, mm-hmm. but I, I honestly can't remember where I saw it. I'm pretty sure it was the first Tarantino movie I saw because um, – I didn't know about Reservoir Dogs until after I had seen Pulp Fiction. Because, mm-hmm. like, I, I've always been into, like, you know, like, fairly masculine crime films. Like, right. You know, I'm very stereotypical boy. You yeah, know? Like, action movie dude. Right, action movie dude. Like, I, I saw Terminator 2 when it came out. My parents were totally fine with me watching that. As it turns out, violence was much more acceptable than sex. Right. So um, I, violent movies weren't a big deal. Um, and it may have been that my parents let me watch Pulp Fiction, but like made me leave the room during that particular yeah. scene. I don't remember. But um, yeah, I, I remember seeing it and seeing it over and over and over again. Right. Um, and uh, I, in fact, it was one of the first movies where like the internet was a factor because mm. I, I remember having like before I got into high school, I remember having this printout. Mm-hmm. That was like the theory of what's in the briefcase, oh. and like all the little fan theories that it had been like printed out off of like some website message board, right? You know, some some forum or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like one of the first movies I ever like really dug into, like really got into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, um, like I I was consuming everything that tarantino put out right and you have a a personal relationship with quentin tarantino and that not a personal but like a very you have a very personal relationship with tarantino and that not with him not with with him but with with his movies right Um, so so he's the one director who when he puts out a new movie i i go and see alone by myself first right he has to buy no no one can go with him yep no he has to go by himself by myself usually i go during the day when there's very few people there Mm -hmm. and i sit in the theater and watch it by myself and then i'll go watch it again so every tarantino movie i've seen at least twice Mm -hmm. um i I, I didn't see pulp fiction or reservoir dogs in the theater because i was too young right but i've seen those like literally dozens of times right right 36 to 40 times. So what is your favorite Quentin Tarantino movie? It's Pulp Fiction. It's Pulp it's Fiction? It's the best one. Yeah. Okay. You think yeah. Pulp Fiction is his best movie? I, I don't think that there's an argument that can be made otherwise. I think it's. I think that's his best film. Okay. Uh, my second favorite is Res- Reservoir Dogs. I've okay. seen I've seen both of those movies um, like upwards of 40 to 50 times probably. Okay. Uh, cool. I'll, I'll, watch, I'll watch each of them two or three times a year. Okay. Yeah, I would say I, have to, I really like Inglorious Bastards for the reasons I already stated. I think um, Pulp Fiction would be second, and then Reservoir Dogs would be third, and then Unranked would be all of the others. I would honestly probably put the Kill Bill movies towards the end of that list. Um, I just didn't get as much out of them as I did the others. Uh, but In fact, I, I, I think uh, um, for me it's uh, Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, hmm. and then... Um, Maybe Kill Bill Two, okay, and then um, probably Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill One, 
um, and then probably Hateful Eight and Django Unchained. See, I just don't have as a refined or nuanced appreciation of Quentin Tarantino movies that you do, but I do like them. And just to just to be you know blunt, just because I have a loose ranking in my head and Nate has a loose ranking in his head does not mean that we think any of his movies are bad. Mm-hmm. Just compared to one another, we have favorites. And in fact, I would say um, I probably like um, True Romance, which is a movie he wrote but didn't direct, mm-hmm. better than like half of the movies he directed. Okay. Um, and I don't particularly care for um, Natural Born Killers, but he didn't which direct is a movie that. he wrote but didn't direct and in fact kind of like disregards because it was changed so dramatically from what he wrote. Right. Um, but he wrote that and then... Um, he's he's written or helped direct a couple of other things because we we didn't even mention um, Death Proof and yeah um, he wrote know. half of Death the first one of them he, one of he, them in he that he wrote the second half um, okay yeah he he wrote um, what is it uh, it's um, what what is the fucking full name of that movie it's, Grindhouse uh, the well, well the double feature the Grindhouse double I don't know feature. I'd have to look it up I, I can't, can't remember I can't remember but either way it's yeah. to me it's kind of like I you, I could take it or leave it right it's all. Tarantino adjacent, yeah, right. Um, yeah. But there's, but a, there's a lot of things he's been involved in. But yeah, I don't think that there's anything he's done. Yeah, for, he's, I can't believe I forgot about he's that. He's touched one. on, or he's he's directed, or written, or produced that is garbage. I think right. everything he's done is high quality, and some of them I like better than others. Um, so anyway, that's that movie. Uh, would I recommend it? Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, especially if you can break it up uh, episodically on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is the way to go. Um, one, because of from a time per- commitment perspective, and two, because I think it's actually a really enjoyable way to consume this movie in particular. Uh, Planet Terror. Planet Terror. So, yeah, Planet okay. Terror, Death Proof. Like, I, to me, this is my opinion, um, Planet Terror is so forgettable, I forgot the name of it. I, I don't enjoy it. But really one of them all. he directed and one um, of them he didn't. Yeah, so, so Planet Terror, that was Robert Rodriguez. Okay. And Death Proof was him. Now, Death Proof was fun, <clears throat> but it's just like this car movie. And it's, um, you know, it kind of fetishizes like that, like the old school chase, like, right. you know, kind of woman thing and like twist it on his head like where women are like the victims of the the bad guy right. but then like kind of turns it on its head and it was all right but it's like it's not really a movie there's not a story to it oh right? that kind of reminds me of one thing i wanted to say about hateful eight do you mm-hmm. mind yeah. so i think um i read online both criticism criticism about this in both directions where the daisy domergu character who's the the um criminal that mm-hmm. uh, john ruth is taking in for his bounty um, she's treated terribly in the movie. Now she's arguably a villain for sure, but you know, she's smacked around a lot and she's talked down to, she's called a bitch. She's, you know, uh, has her teeth knocked out, like all this stuff. And some people are like, this is just such terrible treatment of women. And then some people are like, no, women are equal. And this just proves this is great. And this is actually <laughs> feminist. And here's my take on it. Uh, yeah, fucking bitch was evil and crazy. I'd have smacked her around too. Like, I don't think that there was anything wrong with, I don't think that this movie was grotesque in its display of violence against women. I think it was grotesque in its display of violence, period. And if you're going to, like, um, pin all of that on one character, I think that then you just completely miss the point of the I, movie. I do think, it, to some degree, an argument could be made that it is intentionally shocking and touches on, like, every conceivable taboo Yeah, that, like... I, I could see if somebody was like, oh, this movie was like made to be edgy to like fuck with people. I would say, yeah, that's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't disagree with you. Yeah, However, I, I don't think it makes it any less compelling. 
No. I don't think it makes it less of a movie. So, Mm-mm. In fact, I would say if you wanted to co- kind of argue like that the movie is somewhat <clears throat> more feminist than less feminist or, or more uh, kind of pro-women than anti-woman, you know, the, the, the business owner of Minnie's Haberdashery is an African-American female, right? Like I think that that is, I wouldn't call it necessarily progressive, but he could have just have, have easily made that a male character. So we see, we see, you know, two of the more prominent and successful characters in the movie, a female business owner and a female criminal who has a bounty on her head of $10,000 um, being like pretty prominent. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that it's necessarily a pro woman movie, but I think it does kind of highlight like, Hey, women can be equally as evil as men and women can be equally as successful as men. Um, you know, I think the only thing that we're not equal in is our ability to, uh, uh, grow muscle mass <laughs> and uh, our ability to not become pregnant uh, from sex. So uh, anyway, that being said, great movie. Definitely check it out if you have the time and the interest. If you like Quentin Tarantino stuff and you don't mind bloody violence and gore, uh, it's definitely for you. And if you have the opportunity to watch it split into four pieces in Netflix, I recommend that as well. So moving forward on to Black Death, mm-hmm. I would say maybe as gruesome as a movie for very different reasons. Yeah, it's definitely, I would say that it is a film that is like less developed um, in like dialogue and character. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't really think it needs to be more developed than that. Um, It's basically the story of a, um, it's, well, first of all, it's a movie with Sean Bean. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like it, it shouldn't be a spoiler. Sean Bean is known for one thing. Yeah, he's known. Well, he's known. He's known for being a good actor, but among his many accolades is Sean Bean always dies at the end of things. I feel like that's not really a spoiler. No, um, it's not. It he, is. A, it is another movie where Sean Bean dies, but that's all we'll tell. Yeah, you. Sean Bean's character does not live to see the credits. So Sean Bean plays a um, well, like a knight that and, works for the like a bishop, right? Um, in like the 1300s and um, in England. Yeah, in England. And he goes, um, um, basically what his job is, is him and his merry band of like badasses, they yeah. go and they, uh, they get rid of, um, like worshipers of devils and, right. and, and demons are essentially, I, I would consider them like the, the precursor to the inquisition. Oh yeah. Right. Right. So, so they're, they're kind of like knights that go around and expel evil. Yeah. And so right now the black death. Is sort of rolling through England. Mm-hmm. The bubonic plague. Yeah, it, it is. It is a. Uh, it's not a great time. No, not a good time to be an English person. And so it opens up, and uh, the main character was his name Osmond. Osmond, yeah, um, played so by Eddie Redmayne. Who, his name yeah. rings a bell to me, but I, I like couldn't tell what I knew him from. Oh, Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. So he was in the Theory of Everything. He played Stephen Hawking's. Um, Stephen Hawking's. Hawk, Stephen. Stephen Hawking's. Sure. I'm get, Hawking, Hawking, Hawking. I'm getting confused with Richard Dawkins. Sorry. Yeah, Stephen Hawking. Um, and uh, <laughs> he was in. Um, oh, he was in the um, Fantastic Beasts movies, the Harry Potter sequels oh, okay. or prequels. Yeah, because I don't, I don't know anything about. Yeah. Them, so right? this was yeah. one of I think Eddie Redmayne's first movies because this came out in 2010 and it actually had a limited release. Um, it was I filmed in the UK and I think it was released in the UK and Germany in 2010, but it never. Uh, was in the theaters in the U.S. And I only found out about it 
uh, several years ago because it was released on Netflix, but you can get it on DVD. Uh, I don't know if you can still find it on Netflix, but you can probably find it online. Yeah, we got it. We got it on DVD. Where did we? Uh, we got it at like half price. Half books price or books. Like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so someone real expensive. Yeah. So you can find it like at any place that sells DVDs, and maybe even like a used bookstore or a yeah, used DVD place. I, so I, I had never heard of it, um, but uh, I'm, I, I'm. And glad. this came I, out I, before the first season of Game of Thrones. Yes. So this Sean De- Sean Bean is is just pre-Eddard Stark Sean Bean. Actually, you're incorrect about that. Am I wrong? You're wrong, but you're not. So chronologically, date-wise, you're not wrong because the first episode of Game of Thrones aired in 2011. Okay. So it came out a year after this movie came out. However, Sean Bean had been working on Game of Thrones since... 2009. Oh, so maybe he had filmed the pilot in a few episodes yeah. of Game so, of Thrones. So he, he had already been working. So it was kind of like, it, it's weird because there's another there's another actor in this that also is on Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, they must have got hired based off of this movie. But no, they probably just kind of coincidentally, yeah. maybe they had been in the area. And, and actually, I think probably, <laughs> I did not notice this movie being a thing that was advertised for consumption in the States until after well after the first season of Game of Thrones came out. So I mm-hmm. feel like maybe the popularity of that show and Sean being in that show may have elevated it to the point where Black Death was yeah, being advertised yeah, in the States. I mean, um, watching this, it definitely, get, I got a strong, like, Eddard Stark feel from the character. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so... Very I mean, honorable. Yeah. yeah. Like, like um, but, but I would say that Game of Thrones definitely has more, like, you know... Um, like he's much more stoic mm-hmm. and like kindly character mm-hmm. in Game of Thrones, and here he's kind of like this badass Black Knight. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And, and I like Black. I mean, like he's dressed in all black. His armor's black. He's got this like you know cape with the white cross on it. So mm-hmm. like it's definitely cool. I don't know all those particulars about like the time and the era. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's like accurate or you know but looked it to me right believable to me so you you kind of were starting so uh we've got sean bean Mm -hmm. traveling with like his group of badasses they're in service to the the catholic bishop and they happen upon a monastery where the the monastery and the surrounding village have been ravaged by the bubonic plague and he's been tasked with going to find uh, a witch or a necromancer or something in a nearby marsh, but yeah. he needs a guide. So basically, um, there's like this town or v- this village, I guess would be the more appropriate term, where it seems as if uh, r- rumor has it that the plague has not ravaged. Mm-hmm. And it is believed that the people there are um, immune to it because of like the workings of a necromancer or, yeah. or a witch. Or a witch or they're pagans yeah. or something. Either yeah. whatever, they're they're without God. They're right, godless right, people. Right. And that's why they haven't gotten sick. Yeah. And so um, Eddie Redmayne's character, um, he, he when the movie starts, he's being held um, like in a uh, in a cell, like yeah. in a dungeon. In the monastery. And, right, in the monastery because they're concerned that he may have been exposed to the Black Plague. Right, so he's kind of been quarantined. Right, and they're showing that like people are dying. And so after like a certain period of time, they let him out because, it's, you know, he hasn't displayed symptoms. Mm-hmm. And so he goes home and like his girlfriend or something is yeah. there. And he's not supposed to have her as a girlfriend or whatever. Because he's a monk. Right. He's a monk. Yeah. You know, you no fucky, you're monkey. Yeah. That's what you do. And so she she's like, oh, you know, like I thought you were dead. And he's like, well, you got to go. Yeah. Like I'm a monk. You can't be here. You're going to die if you stay. Right. Yeah. And so she gets mad and she leaves and she tells him, I'll wait for you. 
at this place, mm-hmm. you know, at the cross and the crossing and da 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 da, I'll wait there for a week. And if you don't show up, like, peace out, I'm done. Yeah. And so she leaves. And then he's racked with guilt. He loves her. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes and he prays. He prays on it. And he says, God, give me a sign. And so after he's done praying, we move forward. And that's where Sean Bean's character and, like, his band of of other, like, knights Mm -hmm. of these, like, hardened warriors shows up. And he's like, I need to get to this place. I'm here on authority of the bishop. And you need to give me one of your monks because I need a guide. And so Eddie Redmayne's character, he's like, I'll go. Mm -hmm. He sees it as a sign because he knows the area. That's where he, like, grew up. Mm -hmm. And so he can guide them. And then he'll go and he'll meet with his woman. Right. Um, he takes that as a sign from God. God says, you know, be with your, your lady. And so, um, you know, there's like the hemming and hawing and the little debating. They're like, you can't go. And he's like, I was raised there, blah, blah, blah. We move forward. Mm-hmm. So then he joins them on this journey. And we kind of get to know him and some of these characters. And these characters, I, I think that they were very cool characters, very interesting. Right. Um, like warriors who, um, like, have been doing this for a long time. Right. And some of them were veterans of like a recent war, one of one of the many recent wars England had with France. Um, so the movie takes place in like 1340 something. So mm-hmm. you can Google what would have been a war right, that England right. recently had with France. But a lot of them are veterans for that. And they're kind of like one night over the campfire talking about like the plague and um, Eddie Redmayne, the monk, said the, the monk is like, I don't think that this is a curse from God. I just think that people are sick, and I don't think that God is punishing us with the plague. And one of the um, warriors kind of steps forward and says, he's like, no, absolutely, this is a punishment from God because you know we were at Battle X against the French, and yeah. we were outnumbered, and but they weren't expecting us to have longbows, and we slaughtered them even though they had higher numbers. And you know, generally, when warriors meet each other on the battlefield. Um, we'll give each other a death of mercy by stabbing. And this kind of comes into play later on in the movie, but he describes in detail, like, this is how we stab them and where we stab them to make sure that they die a quick death so they don't linger and suffer on the battlefield, like, you know, full of arrows. But the king ordered us not to do that. And because we didn't give um, the French army a merciful death, um, we're now being punished by God for our lack of mercy with this black death. And so Mm -hmm. this is kind of like one of the warriors' take on the situation. Right. Right. And so they make the journey and um, uh, he goes to that cross mm-hmm. and like I, don't, I wasn't really sure what had happened, but it seemed like he, he went to the place where he agreed to meet his girl mm-hmm. and like it, something was off about it. Like, right. It was like her up. horse was there, but she wasn't yeah, there. It was like it was it was just messed up. Right. Um, and so he starts to like kind of freak out. Yeah. And, and one thing you might have missed was that he found like some cloth that was bloodied on the ground near the horse. Mm-hmm. So he thinks like, oh, my God, she's died. Like someone's kidnapped her like I don't know what's going on but before he can really process it too much he like this band of thieves and robbers comes out of nowhere and surrounds him so he freaks out he runs back to where everyone else is sleeping and wakes everyone up and then they kind of have like a battle scene with like this like you know group of marauding thieves that hang out in the forest on their way to get to this marsh where you know supposedly the necromancer lives right right um, a battle ensues. Some deaths are had uh, in the meantime. Mm-hmm. But they, so they get to the village. And um, I don't want to go too deep into like what happens here. Yeah, because you don't want to spoil right, it. Right. I don't want to spoil the movie because I definitely want people to see it. But um, it's certainly not as it seems. Right. And we, um, we 
encounter the other actor from Game of Thrones. Right. Um, who, I don't remember the actress's name, but she plays uh, Melisandre. She plays Melisandre in Game of Thrones, and her name is Carice Van Houten. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it uh, seemed to me that uh, there were some similarities. Some similarities between those two characters, for sure. That's yeah. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. But basically, you kind of go into this part in the movie thinking one thing. Uh, until you get to the village. So until you get to that like village, you kind of think you can kind of think like, oh, this movie is a is a period history piece. And the village happens, and you're like, maybe this is a supernatural horror movie. And then like some other things happen, and you might be like, well, it could be a supernatural horror movie, or maybe it's just a period piece. Like right. <laughs> like there's a lot of like sort of like shifts and and surprises that maybe kind of take you a bit on a journey of like I don't know what to make of this movie yeah. so it's like I'm not sure if you would call it like a historical fiction or if you call it horror because it has religious elements and supernatural it, elements it definitely and, it's it's certainly more brutal and gory than it is horrifying mm-hmm. like it's not I didn't personally find it to be very suspenseful right but um watching it uh I I very much was interested in the movie mm-hmm. and it definitely kept me um I would say story wise it's very basic it's a simple story yeah it's not there's not a lot going on in it however it is it it, it had the desired effect mm-hmm. because watching it I was like oh man I'm like super inspired to like there's so much I could do with this or like there's so many directions I could take this or whatever yeah to use in your vampire right, game right yeah. to, to use going forward and it was brutal and bloody enough to keep me engaged. And there was one point, so this is, there's one point in the movie where a thing happens and Nate goes, oh God, well that might have been a bit too much. And I was like, <laughs> okay, so this is a pretty, yeah. this is a gruesome yeah. enough movie yeah. for Nate. So I would, I would definitely classify it more horror, mm-hmm. but not like suspense horror. It's definitely, it is a period horror piece, mm-hmm. but not, it's not, it doesn't have monsters, nothing like that. It's just shows you the horror of what men are willing to do right and uh i think i don't obviously i'm not a historian but i I think it was a pretty accurate representation of just how hard life was how grueling and depressing life could be during this time period in, in history because it didn't pull any punches in showing you like the filth and the gore and just like the absolute despair of what it probably was like to live through a plague yeah in medieval Europe. And I think I asked you, I was like, do you think that they like knew what like happiness and fun was back then? I can't imagine, I, not in the same way we do. No. I mean, I think you, like, do I think that there were times when people were happy? Yes, but I think that that happiness was probably like, oh good, the harvest is over and we got through winter and no mm-hmm. one's dead. I'm happy about that. It's yeah. not like, oh man, this fucking gated video game's awesome and I'm going to go to an amusement park this summer and like, oh, this movie's coming out and oh my God, bubblegum's a thing. Like, I don't think the, people the, were as happy as we are of, now. Think about it like this. <laughs> like, like, everybody stunk. Yeah. And the thing that always strikes me is that people's teeth were terrible. Terrible. And they represented that well in this movie. And, and like, imagine how much pain. Like, have you ever had a toothache before? I actually haven't knocked on wood. Okay. Yeah. So you so anybody out there who has bad teeth or mm-hmm. has had bad teeth, mm-hmm. like a toothache is the worst. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, you let a tooth get bad enough, get abscessed, like it can kill you. Yeah. And so just imagine like all day long, you just have nothing but like throbbing, aching pain mm-hmm. in your mouth. Mm-hmm. 
So your entire mood just sucks. Yeah. Right? You can't eat anything well. You know, you, you drink alcohol to like numb the pain, mm-hmm. right? And you're you're constantly malnourished. You're probably dehydrated because it's not, yeah. it, oh, you yeah. can't it's drink like, water. Like how, how much must life have sucked back then? Sucked so badly. And then they depict what the plague looked like. And I, I mean, I've never seen the Black Plague, but I know that it basically, the virus kind of nests and seeds in your lymph nodes and then they become swollen and engorged and to the point where they burst with like a black pussy (laughs) bloody (laughs) fluid and they represented that in the movie by showing people's lymph nodes in their armpits and on their necks and just like um, the the, um, practical effects of corpses and just even the special effects of how some Mm -hmm. people died It it was a lot the one thing that I didn't really... You're not going to want to eat a lot, I think, no, while watching no, this movie. Yeah, it's probably not a dine and, and watch yeah. movie. But, uh, um, <laughs> no one, pudding while you're watching Black Death. The one thing that I didn't really care for, uh-huh. and this is just my personal critique, was the like shaky cam fight scenes. Mm, yeah. And there's it's not very, a lot of them. But very born identity it, it, it influence. Was, it was yeah. a little jarring and, and like not in a way where I felt like I was necessarily in the fight scenes, mm-hmm. but like kind of made me a little nauseous but they're quick and it's not like there's not a lot of it in the movie so just a small critique but honestly like to me it was just uh you know it it, it was kind of like a just a quick film and Mm -hmm. i I enjoyed it and you know i'll probably watch it again because again it's kind of like giving me uh, the feeling of being in that era mm-hmm. and in that time and kind of um, inspiring kind of like horror in that era. Not mm-hmm. a lot of niceness going on. No, but it's a pretty good movie and I liked it enough to, to watch it a second time with yeah. Nate. So uh, I would recommend it as well. Cool. Well, um, again, that's Black Death. Came out and in 2010. Sean Bean is awesome in pretty much everything he's in. Yeah. I, I think that the acting in the movie was of a much greater caliber than like the maybe like, you know, what, what a movie of uh, probably like a lower budget film. Yeah. So this was probably a lower budget film. And I think that the, according to Wikipedia, it's worldwide release, which again, I believe it was only released in Western Europe when it came out in 2010 was $272,000. So like less than like a little over a quarter of a million dollars did this movie make. Um, I don't know how much it costs to make, yeah. but probably not a lot. And you you can tell, um, you know, uh, but it's a good movie. Yeah. I would definitely recommend checking it out. So that kind of wraps up our um, Hateful Eight Black Death review. Um, he was in Jupiter Ascending as well. Who was? Oh, Eddie Redmayne? Yeah, Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw Jupiter Ascending. It's like a Wachowski Brothers movie. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff. I, I, I recognized him, but mm-hmm. I didn't couldn't tell you what I recognized him from. And I don't know how old he is in real life, so I don't know how old he would have been when this movie was, was filmed. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he's probably my age or just a smidge younger. He's in his 30s, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, so he was probably in his like mid to early 20s, and he looks it. He looks kind of baby-faced. Yeah. Um, but this is the first thing I ever saw him in, and then he kind of blew up and became um, a very big deal, uh, you know, because of the Fantastic Beasts movies, um, and because of the 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 Stephen Hawking Hawking's movie. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would I would say um, it was surprisingly good. I, I enjoyed it, and I definitely watch it again. So cool. Well, what do we have coming up? Do we know? Uh, I don't know what we have coming up, and in fact, I don't know exactly how we're going to be presenting it because we're going to be having some changes here in our studio. Okay. So I think um, we might be going back to doing video doing as well. Video. Okay. Yeah, yeah, very soon. Of course, so. we'll still put out the audio, and yeah. the video will come later. But Nate's going to have a little bit of increased capacity to do those types of things, and so that's good. So we might get back to doing video, give a little more experience and practice with um, editing video and and doing things like that. Um, but I know we've both got a couple of books that we would like the other one to read. Um, we recently bought some comic books not too long ago that I haven't had a chance to dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have some shows that we've seen that we can compare and contrast. Yeah. So I, I know coming up, we're going to do Willow, which I've never seen and Johnny Mnemonic, which you've never seen. Correct. Um, and then well, you said some books. Uh-huh. So yeah. yeah, I don't know. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. Um, Hopefully also, stuff you like. Yeah. And if you, if you guys listening have any suggestion for us, uh, stuff that we should watch, uh, and if it fits into the sort of pre or agreed upon criteria of this podcast, we will throw it into the mix. Definitely. So, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it. Also. <clears throat> I was um, wrong. No, no. Yeah. I just <laughs> want to mention one other thing. So um, if you're going to be in Indianapolis for Gen Con this year, mm-hmm. um, go to our Twitter or our Facebook um, because we're going to have some meetups on Thursday the 1st. We're intending uh, as of now to have one earlier in the afternoon and one at night. Um, there are tickets available. They're free. They don't cost you anything, but tickets available for our second meetup, mm-hmm. our evening meetup, where we're just going to get together, play some card games, maybe drink a couple of beers, have a good time. Um, go, you know, go to our Twitter, go to uh, the Utility Muffin Labs Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And you can find um, links to all that on our website, utilitymuffinlabs.com. Absolutely. And just get tickets. They're free. And uh, we just there so we know how many people are going to show so we can plan accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, come and hang out with us. No pressure, you know, and uh, just talk about cool stuff and geek out. Yeah, geek out. Awesome. Uh, that's that's basically it. So, cool. All right. All right. Well, thanks everybody. We Thank love you. you. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye-bye. I got to pee. Me too. Hey folks, this is Rachel from utilitymuffinlabs.com. If you enjoyed the Playing Hooky podcast, think about supporting us. For more podcasts, art, videos, and gaming, go to utilitymuffinlabs.com. Follow our podcast on Twitter, at Hooky Podcast, on Instagram and Facebook at our Utility Muffin Labs name, and support us on YouTube at Utility Muffin Labs. Check out our other gaming-related podcasts, 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade and the Nerd Words Podcast. Thank you all for your support. Utility Muffin Labs, consistently rated adequate. <laughs> <laughs>